0: Our text this afternoon is taken from God's Word as we find it in Daniel 1. his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, Belteshazzar; to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this test and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The sermon which I read to you this afternoon was prepared by Reverend Eichelboom, of the Free Reformed Church at Lanceston, Australia. In response to the sermon, we will sing hymn 53, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, any teacher will tell you there are a lot of different ways to learn. The easiest way to get information is to go to an encyclopedia, or if you like, the internet. Type in Korean War, and your computer will guide you to several thousand different websites. And so you can discover everything you want to know about the Korean War. But there is also another way of learning about a particular war. And that is by reading a novel. In fact, a novel often gives a much better impression of what really happened. For in a novel, we meet some of the people involved. We get an impression of how the war affected families and changed lives. Somehow a novel makes a war seem more real. Now, of course, the book of Daniel is not a novel. Instead, it is the inspired word of God. But still, the book of Daniel is as exciting, as dramatic as any novel. In chapter 1, Daniel bravely challenges an instruction given by the king of Babylon himself. A few chapters later, Daniel's friends survive being thrown into a fiery furnace. And in chapter 6, Daniel himself survives being thrown into a den of lions. How many novels offer more excitement than that? And yet, we understand... The book of Daniel is not included in the Bible because God wants to entertain us with exciting stories. Instead, the book of Daniel is all about one particular war, war between Judah and Babylon, war between Jehoiakim of Judah and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but most of all, war between God and Satan. For on one hand we have Daniel, or the kingdom of Judah, that is, the people of God. And on the other hand, we have Babylon, or as Daniel calls it, Babel. And the name Babel, Babel is mentioned in Genesis 11, you know, immediately after the flood. Then all the people of the earth came together to build a city that would reach up to heaven. And if we go right to the other end of the Bible, in Revelations 18, Babel is still a wicked, godless city that opposes God in the church. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, Babylon is the city of man, The city of unrighteousness. And in Daniel 1, these two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, oppose each other. And then we notice that Babel is, oh, so much stronger than Jerusalem. At the beginning of the chapter, the armies of Babylon have surrounded Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem falls, the king of Babylon takes the treasures that belong in the temple of the Lord and brings them to the temples of the gods of Babylon. And then the people of Israel, the children of God, also become prisoners of the king of Babylon. Babel is almighty, while Jerusalem is battered, bruised, and defeated. So it seems, for a moment, as if God is weak, while the devil is strong. But then the rest of the book of Daniel demonstrates, in a most dramatic fashion, that the Lord our God is in total control. In fact, the Lord our God plays with Babylon like a cat plays with a mouse. He gives her freedom, freedom to attack his children, but he never loses control. Instead, everything always happens exactly the way that suits him. Every time he shows his power so that even the heathens are forced to confess his glory and power. And we need to hear this message, beloved congregation, because we look around us and we see that we live in a godless world, and it seems to be getting worse all the time. And then it is easy to be discouraged, easy to worry about the future and our children. If the world sometimes makes life difficult for us now already, We shudder to think about what the world might do to our children. But then the Lord speaks to us through the mouth of his prophet, Daniel. And he says to us, see how powerful I am? Notice that I am in complete control. And so believe that I will provide for you. I will protect you. And I will always be there for your children as well. I control all things by my almighty power. I proclaim to you this morning the gospel of your salvation under the following theme. The Lord Almighty reveals His glory through the faithfulness of His children. Our three points. Their faithfulness is challenged, their faithfulness is confirmed, their faithfulness is rewarded. The faithfulness of God's children is challenged. When Jerusalem falls, and when the people of Jerusalem are taken captive, we can imagine that they must be quite nervous for who knows what Nebuchadnezzar will do. Sometimes all the men of a city had their right eye gouged out so that they could not rebel anymore, 1 Samuel 11, verse 2. On other occasions, all the men were forced to lie down on the ground, and two-thirds of them were put to death, 2 Samuel 8, verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar is not bound by any Geneva Convention, which outlines how prisoners must be treated. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar may do as he pleases. And when we read our text, we might think that Nebuchadnezzar is unusually kind and generous because our text does not mention any kind of brutality or mass murder. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar orders the chief of his royal officials to select from among the captives some young men who are the most handsome and most intelligent. And those young men will be taught the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And after that, they will be given an opportunity to enter into the king's service. And again, brothers and sisters, it seems as if Nebuchadnezzar is an unusually kind and generous man. But do not forget that Nebuchadnezzar is a Babylonian. And therefore, Nebuchadnezzar will always remain an enemy of God and of God's people. And so, even when Nebuchadnezzar is being kind, he has his own purpose, his own goal. Because these young men, being the most handsome and the most intelligent, if one day Nebuchadnezzar sends them back to Canaan again, they will naturally become the leaders of the Israelite nation. And if Babylon can train these young men in the politics and culture of Babylon, when they go back to Canaan, naturally they will bring their Babylonian ways with them. And now we understand why Babel is not interested in killing these children of Israel. Because if children of God are put to death, the devil does not gain anything. But if Satan can change them, if Satan can train them, so that they do not think and behave like children of God anymore, but so they behave like children of the world instead. And especially if Satan can arrange that they become the leaders of Israel, then Satan can really use them to lead the church astray. And the end result will be that the people of Israel give up their own language, their own culture, and their own God-given way of life, and their own God-given religion. In the end, the will become like the Babylonians, and the church will become one with the world. And if Nebuchadnezzar plans to change Israel in this way, if Babel wants to change the way that the people of God think and live, Nebuchadnezzar's plan is based on a principle which we easily forget, and that is, the future of the church lies with the young people. If we can influence the young people, we can make plans for the future, because soon these young people will be the leaders, and soon they will be making the decisions. That's true for the Canadian nation, and for this reason politicians have to consider young voters when they develop their policies but it is just as real in the church. Today we have office bearers who sit in consistory meetings and classes and synods, and they make decisions about how things must happen in the churches today. And of course, the decisions that they make today are very important for the church today. But what will happen in 10 or 20 years' time? Then the young people whose opinions are being formed today will be making all the decisions. Understand this, young people, girls and boys. The future of the church lies with you. Understand this, parents and teachers. The future of the church lies with our children and our young people. And so when the adults sit in the living room discussing all sorts of spiritual and church-related issues, while the young people are playing around outside or in the games room, there is nothing wrong with that, but it cannot always be that way. Instead, it is necessary that we communicate with our young people, that we demonstrate to them how we ought to live as children of God, as individuals, as families, as friends boyfriends and girlfriends, as members of this church community, and also as members of society. For if we don't teach our young people how Christians ought to live, the world certainly will teach them a different way of life. And if they follow the world, it will be disastrous for your children and for you, but also for the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The future of the church depends on the way that our young people are trained. This, certain, this is certainly one of the challenges that we must be busy with today but do you notice how thorough Nebuchadnezzar is? Take the names of the four men mentioned in our text, Daniel, Mishael, both end with L, that means God. And the other two names, Hananiah and Azariah, both end with the Ah of Yahweh, that means the Lord. These names, says Babel, have to disappear. And when Daniel and his friends have new Babylonian names, they must learn to eat Babylonian food, and read and write the Babylonian alphabet, and be busy with Babylonian literature. Everything of the past, everything learned in Jerusalem, must be done away with, erased, forgotten, and replaced. Instead, those Israelite young men must become like Babylonians in every respect. And of course, there are no Israelite young ladies in the picture. Instead, these young men must be matched up with Babylonian women, and only when everything around them has become Babylonian, only then will Nebuchadnezzar be satisfied. And also, this is part of Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. And also, this part of Nebuchadnezzar's strategy is based on a principle that we can easily forget. Because we truly want to bring up our children in the fear of the Lord. And therefore, we teach our children Bible stories, we send them to catechism classes, we sing psalms with them at the supper table. In other words, we teach our children all about the Bible and all about Christ. And we do all this because we really think it's important. We, want, we really want our children to be Christians. But then there are also many other things which to us don't seem important. The way we dress, for example, that's only an external matter. It has nothing to do with faith. The music that we listen to, that's not important either. The way we talk to strangers or talk to each other. The way that we furnish our houses. These are personal things, matters of taste. They have nothing to do with our religion, but Nebuchadnezzar knows better. And Satan knows better as well. And that's why when these powers of evil want to influence us, when they want to do their best to draw us away from God, they don't limit their attack to spiritual issues and matters of religion. Instead, they concentrate just as much on everyday issues of the names that we use, the food and drink that we consume, the language that we speak, and the literature that we do or do not read. Our enemies are so clever and so thorough, they pay attention to every issue in life, big or small, important or unimportant. They look everywhere for an opportunity to drag us away from God. The devil knows that little things in life matter very much. Nebuchadnezzar also knew that little things are very important. And so if we want to resist the devil, it is not wise to shrug our shoulders about little things in the lives of our children and to assume that they are not important. For if we ignore anything... We may be sure that the devil will accept the opening with both hands and will use every opportunity to do you and your children as much harm as he can. When Nebuchadnezzar defeats Jerusalem, he seems so kind and generous. Generous, We would call him enlightened. Cruelty and brutality seem to be furthest away from his mind. But behind the kind face of Nebuchadnezzar, we see the hand of Satan, who wants to bring about a deformation in Israel. And Satan attacks, especially young people in the church, because he understands if we can influence their thinking today, in a few years' time, he will have the leaders of the church in his hand. Satan understands that. The world understands that. Do we understand that as well? And when Satan attacks a church, he does not concentrate on religious issues at all. Instead, he attacks us in every issue of our lives. He does whatever he can to make us and draw us away from God. And therefore, we also need to resist the devil, not just in our thoughts about God, not just in our religious life, but indeed we need to resist the devil in every part of our lives and everything that we think, say, and do. That is the challenge that God set before Daniel, and that challenge remains for us today. In our second point, we will see that Daniel and his three friends respond to this challenge in a most wonderful way. They all remain faithful. This faithfulness is confirmed. Daniel can't do anything about the fact that he is in Babel. Neither can he do anything about his new name, Belteshazzar. Instead, he has to accept these things. And in the same way, Daniel has to learn his lessons in Babylonian language and culture. And all these things, Daniel obeys his Babylonian masters. But when it comes to food, Daniel is not quite so cooperative because Nebuchadnezzar has made arrangements with the staff in his royal kitchen that when they prepare food for his table, that same food should also be served to the young men in his service. Whatever is eaten at the court of Nebuchadnezzar, they must learn to eat as well. But Daniel is an Israelite, and through Moses, God commanded that all the Israelites were not to eat certain kinds of food because they are unclean. And so when the servants of Nebuchadnezzar say to Daniel, eat this food, well, the law of God says, you may not eat this food, then Daniel says, no, I will not eat. Because in all things, Daniel wants to obey God, even if it means disobeying Nebuchadnezzar. And this would certainly not be an easy decision to make, brothers and sisters. Daniel has his whole career ahead of him. And if he makes a good impression on the Babylonian rulers now, if he cooperates with them for just the next three years, after that, he can go on getting a well-paid position somewhere in public service. A position of power and respect, where he'll be free to obey all God's laws to his heart's content. Then Daniel will be allowed to be as fussy as he likes about what he eats, and nobody will harm him. But right now, Daniel is not in a position to ask any favors. And so, the wisest thing to do would undoubtedly be to say nothing, eat what is put in front of you, and stay out of trouble. That's one reason why Daniel should eat. It will save him a lot of trouble. But there is also another reason. In verse 3, we read that some Israelite boys were at the king's court. And verse 6 tells us that among these were Daniel and his three friends. And that means Daniel and his three friends are not the only Israelites in this group. Not the only ones whose religion forbids them to eat particular foods. And if everybody else feels that it's okay to eat, if nobody else has a problem with it, why should Daniel Surely if Daniel is going to worry about whether the meat on his plate comes from a cow or a pig, if Daniel is going to ask whether it has been sacrificed to an idol, yes or no, there are more important issues to consider. And think about this, young men and young ladies. If people of the world ridicule you for being different and for standing on your principles, it's much more difficult to stand on your principles when the people of the church also mock you for being square. And so we should all examine ourselves on this point. Do we support those who are prepared to go out of their way and live their faith? Or do we prefer to be around people who do not take their commitment to God so seriously? Daniel does not think about his career opportunities. And neither does Daniel accept without question the easy way out like all the other Israelites do. Instead, we read in verse 8 that Daniel goes to the chief official and explains the situation to him. And when that doesn't help, Daniel goes to the guard who actually serves him as daily food. And Daniel says to him, please don't bring us any food from the royal table anymore. Instead, feed us vegetables and water. Try it for ten days. If after ten days my friends and I look weaker and less healthier than all the other young men, put us back onto the king's diet. But if, on the other hand, we seem to be just as healthy as the rest of them, Let us stick to our own diet for these three years. In other words, please test us. If you do, we promise that we'll abide by the outcome of the test. And we'd like you also to abide by the outcome of this test. And do you see what the possible consequence of this suggestion is, brothers and sisters? If after ten days the guard comes back to Daniel and his friends, if the guard concludes that Daniel is not as healthy as all the others, then Daniel will have to break God's law. Then Daniel will have to eat food that is unclean. Daniel will have to eat food that God has forbidden. And that means, in our text, Daniel is really testing God. Daniel is really saying to God, if you don't want me to eat food that is unclean, if you want me to stick to your law, then you will have to act. You will have to make sure that I stay healthy. When Daniel offers to abide by the outcome of the test, That really means, if God wants Daniel to keep God's law, then God must make sure that Daniel becomes healthy and strong. For if Daniel does not become healthy and strong, then God will lose out, for Daniel will disobey God's law. Indeed, beloved congregation, Daniel does not hesitate to put the Lord to the test in this way. And why not? After all, Daniel believes that God cannot possibly fail. Daniel is convinced that he will be at least as strong as healthy As all the other boys, after all, God is good. God cares for his people. And God always does what is good for them, doesn't he? And so, since God has given Israel the law that they should not eat particular kinds of food, is it likely, indeed, is it possible, that if they obey these laws, they will become weak and unhealthy? Does God put his children on a diet of second-rate foods so that they remain weaklings? Of course not. That is the first place, what God commands must necessarily be good. But more importantly, Daniel also understands that when we eat and drink, our health and strength does not depend on what we eat. Instead, it depends totally on God. We eat, and then God blesses us. He uses the food to give us energy. Not as much energy as there is in the food, but as much energy as he likes. If we drink only water, God can still make us healthy. If we eat the finest foods, if we follow the most carefully planned diet, we can still be constantly sick. Because health and strength don't come from food, instead they are gifts that come to us from God. And this is not only true for our bodies, brothers and sisters, it also applies to our souls and to our minds. Academic and spiritual, too, comes only from God. Of course, we want our children to receive a good education, the best possible. We may not be satisfied with anything less, so that in every aspect of their lives they can carry out the tasks that God gives them to do. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is it that makes a good education? What do our children need to become mentally and spiritually healthy? And then our answer must be, not a brilliant educational program, not exceptional teachers, and not the most up-to-date resources either. Instead, our children depend completely on the blessing of God. For you see what happened to Daniel when he rejected what seemed to be the best food, when he took what seemed to be everyone else to be of lower quality, because he knew that this was the way of obedience to God. God rewarded his faith under his blessing, ten days of vegetables and water did Daniel and his friends more good than the richest food from the palace of the king. Remember this when you have an opportunity to relocate to Fort Mac or the US where you can get a better job. Remember this when you have to make choices for yourself or for your family. Success does not depend on your effort. And what you get out of it does not depend on what you put into it. Instead, success always depends upon the blessing of God. For if God blesses, we are truly blessed, and nothing and nobody can take away our blessing. But if God does not bless us, everything that we do is in vain. Daniel knows this, and he lives according. And therefore the Lord blesses him richly. And we see this in more detail in our third point. Daniel's faithfulness is rewarded. After three years, when Daniel and his three friends are presented to Nebuchadnezzar, these four young men are ten times as wise and understand all, as wise and understanding as all the wise men of Babylon. In this way, God demonstrates that he approves of Daniel and his friends. They have made the right decision. But God also rewards Daniel in another way. We read in verse 21, for Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And this does not mean what it seems to mean. It does not mean that Daniel lived until the first year of King, of Cyrus' reign. For in chapter 10, Daniel tells us about a vision that he had in the third year of Cyrus' reign. And so when we read in verse 21 that Daniel remained there until the first year of Cyrus' reign, the Holy Spirit wants to teach us something quite different. And what, then, does verse 21 mean when it says that Daniel remains there until the first year of Cyrus'? Well, at the beginning of the story, we saw two forces opposing each other, Babel and Jerusalem, the unbelieving world and the church of Jesus Christ. And in the first point, we saw that Babel was free to indoctrinate the children of the church with its own culture and lifestyle. And then it looked as if the church was in danger. But in our second point, we saw that Daniel is not tempted by the opportunities offered by Babylon. Instead, together with his three friends, he is faithful to the Lord. Babel cannot destroy these four God-fearing young men. For more than 60 years, Daniel lives in Babylon, literally in the den of the lion. And yet, the Babylonian lion cannot destroy him. And then verse 21 looks ahead for a moment. Verse 21 reminds us that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, dies, but Daniel lives on. Belshazzar, the following king of Babylon, also dies, but still Daniel lives on. And when Belshazzar dies, the Babylonian Empire collapses, but still Daniel lives on. Babylon, that evil and corrupt city, Babylon, the devil's headquarters, is destroyed. Her might is gone. Babylon, the power of darkness, is defeated, but still Daniel lives on. And that's the point of verse 21, brothers and sisters. Not when does Daniel die, but instead, what is the ultimate outcome of the battle between Jerusalem and Babylon? In the end, who wins? And the answer is, Jerusalem is victorious. The devil has every opportunity. The devil takes every opportunity. But God loves his church, and he does not let it fail. And this is also our ultimate reason for praising God and worshiping him, beloved congregation. Because God is good to us, he gives us so many wonderful things, including food and clothes and houses and many other things besides. But much more importantly, the Lord our God is just as good to us, as he is to Daniel. For more than 50 years already, the churches here in Edmonton have been attacked by Satan in many different ways. Just as God protected Daniel, so God also protects us. We believe that the devil is strong, and he will certainly not leave us alone. Instead, he will do what he can to confuse us, to intimidate us, to stir up conflict in our midst. He will attack you in the places where you are weak. He will attack your family. Your children. Yes, he will attack especially the young people in the church. For if he can influence them, he has the church of the future in his hands. But remember what happened when the devil had Daniel in Babel. The devil had Daniel in the very lion's den. And yet, the devil could not touch him. And what was it that made Daniel so strong? Why couldn't the devil harm Daniel? Because Daniel trusted his covenant God, and Daniel obeyed his covenant God. And therefore, Daniel was blessed beyond his wildest dreams. So that today, Daniel still lives on in the presence of Almighty God. There he waits for you and for me, until one day, together, we will sing the praise of the Lamb who loved us and gave his life for us to save us from our sins. Beloved congregation, follow the example of David and you too will share in his blessings forevermore. Amen.